Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. On Thursday, we learned about a dramatic raid in Syria that President Biden approved, where U.S. Special Operations Forces conducted a nighttime mission to take out the Islamic State's current leader. After a shootout between an ISIS lieutenant and U.S. forces, the IS leader detonated what is believed to be a suicide bomb, killing himself and his own family. There was no loss of American life. For more on how the operation went down, we'll speak to Gordon Lubold, White House and national security reporter at The Wall Street Journal. The American Special uh, Operations Forces descended on this three-story building, really a residence in northwest Syria along the Turkish border. And uh, I think somewhere at the point after they approached, they had helicopters and their drones and a number of, you know, probably a few dozen American troops. At some point in there, their target, who was a leader of Islamic State, did detonate a what we think was a, a vest, an explosive vest, a suicide vest, otherwise known as, on the third floor where he lived with his family, killing himself and the family members. The force of the blast such that some of the bodies actually ejected out of yeah. the building, um, we learned today. And so that then uh, triggered uh, a bit of a firefight with another person on the second uh, second floor of the building who was the leader's deputy. He and his wife barricaded themselves and then uh, I think got into a firefight with the special forces that were there. Ultimately, they were killed. Uh, there were some civilian casualties from the original explosion on the third floor and then probably some others. We're not quite sure. So they, you know, they got their guy, but he was, he killed himself before, much like his predecessor, uh, Mr. al-Baghdadi, the previous leader of the Islamic State. Uh, thankfully, obviously, there was no American casualties. But this operation, the reason why they sent special forces in there is, I guess, President Biden wanted to limit civilian casualties. Unfortunately, that didn't happen because the uh, IS leader blew himself and his family up. But that was the whole reasoning why they wanted to send special forces in there to begin with. My understanding is that there was also a helicopter failure that had a mechanical failure. So they had to basically destroy that before they left, too. It was reminiscent of the 2011 raid uh, in which uh, Osama bin Laden was killed in about about a, uh, Pakistan, uh, in which there was a helicopter problem that created a lot of anxiety at, at the time. This was, a, I think, in this case, uh, from what we understand, a purely a mechanical error with the helicopter that was kind of a sideshow. Ultimately, they were able to remove the helicopter, destroy it, and, and leave. I think that they did plan it. You know, these raids are highly risky. They're very dangerous because you got troops on the ground. You're surrounded by areas that there's not a lot of assurances of security in that vicinity. And so they did plan it. I think uh, we were told earlier today that the modeling that was done on the building itself, of course, they had been looking at this building for many months. The president was briefed in December, and then they found their opportunity last night after the weather cleared. But part of the thing that they said was that they had determined that if the target, in this case, Mr. Karashi, um, did detonate a suicide vest, which is common, that the building would not collapse on the civilians, the innocent civilians who were on, inside below. And so I think that in some cases, right, you've got civilian casualties are always a concern. 
clearly, but I think that they tried to set it up in a way that, that would minimize the ability. And, and what the point that the White House officials were making today was is at least a large number of the probably a, about a five, eight, maybe a dozen civilian casualties. We don't quite have the right number. Some of those were done, were killed at the hands of, of the Islamic state leader himself when he detonated his past. You know, there's so much going on in the world. Obviously, we have what's going on in uh, Ukraine with Russia. The, obviously, the missteps that happened with us in the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So, and, you know, the, the Taliban was involved there. It kind of lost track of ISIS in the news a little bit, except for some circles, I'm assuming. But what do we know about this particular ISIS leader and, and what the group has been up to recently? You're right. We have lost track. It's very easy to lose track of a lot of kind of significant issues that uh, we face around the world. Certainly, we're focused on Ukraine right now. But the Islamic State uh, is still, uh, you know, it was largely, this is an American, you know, U.S. government word is like defeated um, in Iraq and Syria a few years ago, but it's still active. It's just not quite as strong as it once was. Certainly, we saw the impact that ISIS, kind of the Afghanistan branch of ISIS, uh, ISIS-K or ISIS-Khorasan, could have on the ground in Afghanistan with the attacks there. So I think that the problem with killing any of these leaders is there's always somebody else who comes behind them. I think the thinking generally is that you kill, you know, when when they got al-Baghdadi, who was the original kind of inspirational leader of, of, of Islamic State, the guy who comes behind him. Uh, Mr. Kreshi, uh, who was killed yesterday or died yesterday, you know, is that much weaker. I think they still believe that they have a global problem with Islamic State. But this gentleman, it's fair to say that this gentleman was not as much of an inspirational leader as his predecessor. Thus, you know, the group becomes a little bit less centralized and maybe less potent. But nonetheless, it's a strike in the, I mean, it's a, it's a mark in the wind column for the military and for the administration by getting this guy. Gordon Lubold, White House and National Security Reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Next, we'll tell you how the IRS wants to scan your face. Starting this summer, anyone that wants to access their records on the IRS website, like tax transcripts, child tax credits, or payment plans, they will need to record a video of their face and send it to private contractor ID.me to confirm their identity. Many people might have some experience with this already, as about 70 million Americans who have filed for unemployment insurance, pandemic assistance grants, or those child tax credit payments have already had their faces scanned to use the services. For more on all this, we'll speak to Drew Harwell, tech reporter at The Washington Post. So, I mean, this is something that people who have applied for unemployment benefits and child tax credits have had to be dealing with for a couple months. But now it's kind of coming to pretty much everybody else. If you want to access the IRS.gov website, you have to get like a pin for filing your taxes or see how your child tax credits are updating or get your payment plan, anything through the IRS website. You're going to have to look into the camera on your phone or the camera on your laptop and scan your face, get like a facial recognition scan that goes through this private contractor and to the IRS. And they say this is for, you know, cutting down on fraud and identity theft. But it's a huge sort of leap to this new kind of technology. And so there's all of these questions about how is that data going to be used and protected long term? 
well, like you said, a lot of people have already done this uh, who filed for unemployment insurance, pandemic assistance grants, a lot of this stuff, child tax credits, right? So about 70 million Americans have already done this. But, you know, the broader expansion, right? How many people use the IRS website? Some trackers say they had 1.9 billion visits last year. So needless to say, a lot of people are going to have to start putting their uh, their video selfies <laughs> and submit them to ID.me and to the IRS. So tell me how it works, because they say that it only takes a few minutes to go through the process the majority of times. But if you don't make it or there's something that flagged, then you have to do like a video chat with somebody else. And that's where the wait times can extend. Right. Yeah. So they say that pretty much everybody will clear through this video selfie process. You won't have to talk to anybody. But if you hit a snag or it flags you or your camera doesn't work, you have to go to this other video chat thing where you actually wait for somebody that you talk to through your camera and hold up, you know, your driver's license or your passport or your utility bill. So the company says, you know, everything's going great. There's no big delays. And if there are delays, they're really temporary. But we've been hearing from a lot of people who have been having to wait for hours sometimes to get through this system. And they just find it a little unnerving, even just giving their information over to this private company in the first place. So, and, you know, we've just started tax season now, so there's right. many months to go. So, you know, you can still e-file your taxes in the traditional way right now. But if you want to access the IRS website starting this summer, this will be a whole new thing for you. You have to sign up for an account. And so, yeah, it's it's really kind of surprising a lot of people. Here's why there might be a snag with this uh, video chat verification stuff. There's less than a thousand people handling that for them. So 966 agents handle that video chat verification. We're talking about millions of people needing to access this site. So uh, yeah, if there's yeah. snags, there's going to be delays definitely right there. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the privacy issues then, because that always arises when you're giving the government uh, or any company really access to you know biometric data, your face, all that stuff. They are going to store it, uh, store your picture, but you know we don't know how long they'll keep it for, you know, when they delete it. How, how does that part of it work? Yeah. So, you know, what I always tell people is like, you can change your password, but you can't change your face. So this data is typically regarded as like extremely sensitive. But when you hand it over to this company, even if you ask down the road for them to delete it, they have to keep it for at least seven years and sometimes much longer due to these federal like records retention guidelines. So you're effectively handing over some really important data to this company that can decide what they want to do with it. I mean, in this in the U.S., like there are really no laws around how facial recognition should be used or can be used. And so it's kind of just up to the company in terms of how they want to use it. And this company specifically, ID.me, they have a whole kind of retail component of the company yeah. where they have like discounts and they have a whole marketplace. So they say that if you enter stuff in to verify your identity through the IRS, they're not going to use that to like advertise or market to you. But it's really such a blurry line in this company. It's such, you know, people worry about like, is there going to be a slippery slope effect? Like, what is this company going to do with the data long term? And again, this is a private company. This is not an agency that we really get much transparency into. So yeah, to, you know, to, what happens in a couple of years? To your point, right? The advertising is a key part for them. So when you do sign up, 
they're going to ask you, you know, it's probably a little checkbox or something, subscribe to offers and discounts, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, to the yeah. company's online right. storefront. So, you know, that's, that's kind of nuts. And, you know, a lot of people are going to end up checking it and then they're going to get pissed off later. Uh, do they have a good track record, at least with done stuff that they've done so far? This company, you know, they're used by a lot of federal agencies at this point. It's now not just the IRS, but the VA, the Social Security. They're used by a bunch of companies, private companies. And they say that they have a really strong sort of software component. They've passed all these internal tests, but they haven't really opened up those tests to external review. Like they're not peer reviewed. So we can't really tell how good their data really is. And, you know, it's a fairly new relationship that they have with the government. And so it's really hard for us to grade their work. And yet they have this giant contract that we're all going to be partnering up with. So, I mean, it's a good prognosis so far, but there's still so many questions we have to answer. Well, there you go. Starting this summer, the IRS will be scanning your face. Drew Harwell, tech reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. On the coronavirus front, what is the science behind the sharp rise in Omicron infections and then the rapid decline? It seems we might have hit a peak here in the U.S. and are already seeing new infections drop in places like the U.K. and South Africa. For more on how immunity could be building up in the population and the variant could also just be running out of people to infect, We'll speak to Umer Irfan, reporter at Vox. You're right that this is sort of uh, an intrinsic pattern that we see when we have a disease outbreak. You know, you see this with other outbreaks of other infectious disease, and that's usually a function of the disease spreading from person to person, usually one person infecting more than one person, and also people being immunologically naive, meaning that there aren't a lot of people that are vaccinated or immune. So you usually typically see this in the early days of a pandemic. We're seeing this with Omicron because now we're about six months to a year out from our first wave of vaccinations here in the United States. And also, uh, we're seeing that Omicron is more evasive of immune protection, both from vaccines and from prior infection. So effectively, it's like having basically a new virus running through a population. But just as quickly as it rises, it runs out of people to infect, and then you suddenly see a sharp decline. Now, to your point about are we destined to do this? Not necessarily. You know, we can use a lot of different public health tactics to try to control the spread. And so we can shave off the peak and maybe help accelerate the decline. And that's why it's so important to kind of understand how these peaks are working, because it shapes what public health strategies we're using at the time, you know, the masking, the social distancing, all that stuff. I think that's kind of why it's also been so frustrating on the uh, on the part of the public, right? You kind of get a one guideline, then it changes as the, you know, the peak starts going down, as the surge starts slowing down, guidelines are changed, and then, uh, you know, the surge comes back up, and then again, you know, people are just pissed off because we're going right back to the same thing again. Right. And you saw that, you know, very recently in the United Kingdom, as the cases were coming down, they started reopening schools, they started relaxing COVID restrictions. And then all of a sudden, they started to plateau, they stopped declining as quickly as they were falling before. And now infections are basically they're not rising, but they're about holding steady at the same rate. And so a lot of the progress that they were making with the existing public health measures, they've lost that. And the fear is in the U.S., you know, we're just a couple of weeks behind the U.K. Generally, if we relax too soon, especially now that we're still in the middle of winter, you know, we could lose some of the progress and actually maybe perhaps see a rebound. You kind of mentioned it a little earlier uh, that the virus eventually starts running out of people to infect. Is that really what is slowing the declines down? Is it? Uh, I, I know it's a combination of other factors, uh, you know, ourselves as well, right? The more we see cases rise up, we start to take a little more caution, wear the mask and everything. But 
are these declines really just a, f a matter of everybody's kind of been infected already? It's part of it. So like when it runs out of people to infect, we're talking about people that have already been infected, but we're also talking about people who take themselves out of the pathway of the virus, right? So that can also mean, you know, if we do implement, you know, things like more aggressive social distancing and mask wearing and people being more rigorous about hygiene, effectively the virus runs out of people to infect, not because those people are immune, but because they're taken out of the pathway. And so that's why these kinds of things like minimizing public gatherings or limiting gatherings with people that you don't know or in indoor and closed spaces are so important because you're not just denying the virus, you know, fresh people to infect, but by keeping people out of the way in the first place, you know, you're basically accelerating the point at which it will reach a peak and then eventually decline. So we have a lot of people that are vaccinated. We have people that have been infected, so they kind of get this natural immunity to it after a bit. The immunity has been building up now for two years, uh, however long we've been going through this pandemic. It's been building up in the population. Everybody has that kind of big open-ended question. At what point does it become endemic? At what point can we start really relaxing with everything? Well, I mean, the one thing that one researcher made a point to me about is that, you know, the virus doesn't care about our fatigue. So, you know, as long as it's mutating in ways that are dangerous and harmful, we will still need to implement these measures and our fatigue and our, our frustration notwithstanding. That said, I mean, they do expect that we're going to move away from these sharp peaks and more towards perhaps gentle rolling hills associated with seasonality, meaning in wintertime, we may see COVID surges and then those fade away in the summer or in the spring as people start heading back outdoors again. But you're right, the population level, we're seeing immunity build up. But in the United States, for instance, we still have about a quarter of the population that is unvaccinated. Now, a significant number of those unvaccinated people have been exposed to the virus at some point before as well. But there are still, you know, millions of people that have not been infected nor have been vaccinated against this, which means that there's still a large number of uh, vulnerable people. The unvaccinated folks are the people that are making up the majority of hospitalizations, severe outcomes and deaths in the current moment. And so uh, as long as that remains the case, as long as we have a large pool of people that are vulnerable to this infection, even if it is less severe, a small fraction of a large number is still a large number right. of people. And that leads us to the stress on the healthcare system, right? We've kind of, it looks like we might've hit a peak right now with Omicron, but that doesn't mean that the healthcare system will still be taxed. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of people that are getting ill and uh, we've done stories about short staffing in hospitals and all that. So it's still uh, an ongoing problem, at least with that respect, too. That's right. You know, um, you know, the healthcare system, first of all, you know, just the stress of being facing the pandemic for the past two years, the attrition in the workforce and the burnout that you're seeing, coupled with, you know, just the normal winter rise in infections that we see. You know, we have flu now back in the mix that we didn't have in the year before. And so that's also driving up hospitalizations. And so you have to deal with that. And then also we know that uh, hospitalizations and deaths tend to be lagging indicators after cases. So even while cases decline, we may still see an increase in hospitalizations and deaths as the people who were initially infected get more severely ill. And so while we are on the downward slope of new cases, the healthcare system is still likely to see similar or even rising levels of you know patients coming in. Well, hopefully we ride this decline down and uh, we don't get another sharp rise. And hopefully no, there's nothing much to this uh, Omicron sub-variant sub that we've been hearing about. But uh, we'll keep monitoring for all of that. Umer Irfan, reporter at Vox, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.